Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Ireland's gambling crisis, problem gambling in Ireland, is 10 times higher than previously measured. A shock new report reveals. The average monthly spend is just over €1,000 per month. And access is a huge problem because everybody has it in their back pocket now, including children. Over 50 people die in a Russian missile strike on a cafe in eastern Ukraine in one of the deadliest attacks of the war. We get the latest from Kyiv. And as the world sees its warmest September on record, calls for more investments in rural roads, we debate. First tonight, Ukrainian officials say a Russian attack on a village in the east of the country has killed at least 51 people in one of the deadliest attacks of the war. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky denounced the attack on the store and cafe in a village in the Kharkiv region, describing it as brutal Russian crime and a terrorist act. Well, a short time ago, news correspondent Megumi Lim joined me from the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, for the very latest on today's attack which is one of the deadliest of the war so far. Well, it has been a truly devastating day today. Russia launched one of its biggest, uh, deadliest missiles, missile attacks against the Kharkiv region today uh, in the village of Horoza. Uh, population 330 people and 51 people were killed, among them a six-year-old boy, uh, and six people were injured. And local officials say that uh, many of these victims were attending a funeral uh, at a cafe. Uh, before it was hit by a Russian missile. So it has been uh, truly uh, devastating. And uh, although emergency services have said that rescue operations have uh, concluded, uh, they said that it took six hours to carry out rescue operations there. And we, are, we have been seeing really gruesome images uh, circulating on social media of uh, dead bodies lying near the blast site and also injured people being carried out from the rubble. And it is really sad because President Zelensky today, uh, who is in Granada, Spain, meeting with, with world leaders at the European political community, uh, was talking about Kharkiv, actually, and he was stressing the need for more air defenses. Uh, and he said that in Kharkiv, there are many school children who have to attend uh, school in metro stations underground because uh, Kharkiv regularly goes under, undergoes uh, regular missile strikes launched by Russia. So it is incredibly sad to see the scale of attack uh, against Horoza today. You mentioned there that President Zelensky was making a speech at that European political community summit. Did he recognize some of the tensions that perhaps exist now, either within Europe or perhaps in America, when it comes to its ongoing support of Ukraine? 
Well, that's right. There's been a lot of concern surrounding continued aid, especially from the United States, as we have seen over the weekend. U.S. Congress uh, didn't inc include additional aid for Ukraine when they passed uh, this stopgap funding bill to avert a government shutdown. And of course, there's been a lot of concerns. But President Zelensky appeared to remain uh, confident that there is uh, ongoing bipartisan support from the United States. But uh, from President Biden, we have seen a change in tone. Uh, he appeared confident uh, on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, he changed his tone and admitted that he was worried. And of course, uh, Pentagon has also been saying that funds are drying up. Uh, and they said that they have funds, enough funds to help Ukraine in the immediate term, uh, but not in the long term. But for Zelensky, it appears that he doesn't really have time to falter uh, and be concerned. And he has said that this is time, this is a time, uh, there's no time to worry, and this is a time to really work on what's in front of him. Uh, so indeed, he has been trying to shore up more support by meeting uh, world leaders uh, today at the European uh, political community. And indeed, he has been really stressing the need for air defense systems and more ammunition uh, for Ukrainian forces. Yeah, and you can see that attack today perhaps justifies that um, plea from him. All right, Megumi Lim, thank you for that update. Well, a shock new study reveals that the country's gambling problem has been vastly understated and that the figure is probably 10 times higher than the last estimate. The report says some gamblers are spending an average of €1,000 a month, but in many cases, the amounts could be a lot higher. I'm joined by Fianna Fáil TD, Robert Troy, Labour TD, Jed Nash, Professor Colin O'Gara, an addiction specialist, and by recovering gambling addict, Rory O'Connor. We did also reach out to the gambling industry for a spokesperson this evening, but nobody was made available to us here. All right, Colin, I'm going to start with you because you have been saying for a long time that we don't actually have figures that truly reflect the extent of the problem here. And now we do have this ESRI report. 130,000 people with gambling addiction in this country. That's 3.3% of the population. Does that reflect the extent of it? Well, it's not only that. I mean, it's not only the 3.3%. There's also in this um, metric that they use, the severity index is also 7% of people that were moderately affected. And then it, where there was uh, one of the severity indexes hit, uh, you had um, up to 15%. So if you tot all of that up, we're at least at a million people harmed by gambling in Ireland, which is just incredible figures. Um, yes, I, you know, among other people, were talking about this for a long time, but I suppose that, that was purely from the point of view of being on the clinical front line and, and seeing the, the kind of damage and the effect that it was having on not only individuals, but also families. So, yeah, so the figures don't, they wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. Um, as I said, we did contact a number of the representative bodies today, asked them to put somebody forward. They didn't want to participate in tonight's debate. Um, but we did get a, a statement from the Irish Bookmakers Association, and they said they needed to consider the report in more detail. But they did say, on face value, some of the conclusions appear to be at odds they said, with much international research on problem gambling. For instance, and they quote the official NHS Health Survey for England, of course, which suggests a problem gambling rate amongst the total population of 16 plus, so adults, of 0.4%, which is more in line with what our previous figures. So they seem to be questioning this. 
Absolutely, and um, uh, you know it's not surprising because I, I would say it, it comes as a significant shock. But it's not surprising from the point of view there was a Northern Ireland study recently, which indicated severe problem gambling disorder in and around three percent. And I think, look, I mean, when we talk about there, there's so much of the nomenclature here that's completely garbled and, and, and mixed up, right? So in terms of problem gambling. Right, these figures are talking about severe pathological gambling according to international classificatory systems. What that means is that you're in hospital, you're probably suffering from suicidal thoughts, right? Your family are totally annihilated from a financial point of view. That's what so-called problem gambling is in these data, right? That's but the level of harm. That's the three percent, right? But if you actually go on from the three percent into up towards the million of people that this study is showing, you know, is have been harmed. We're talking there about going to the races and spending way more money that, than you would have, probably drinking a load of pints at the same time, waking up the next day and going, God, you know, we're going to spend money on the kids' uh, hurling equipment or whatever, for, and, and you can't spend that, right? So that's the, these are the kind of micro-events that are happening. This is what we mean by harm, right, by, of the gambling product. And, and just, people don't necessarily see that as harm. We might call that social or kind of casual gambling in this country. Well, it's the problem is it's harm. You see that there, there is there, there, just like with alcohol, just forty percent of the population drinking in a repetitive, harmful way. That's binge drinking, where there's effects on children and effects on greater society with fights, muggings, tendencies to A and E. To say that gambling is just three percent or no point, whatever, it's a ridiculous suggestion, right? Of course, gambling is on a spectrum of harm, and it's not just the severe end that end up in hospital with me. Have we a bigger problem here in Ireland than other European countries? We don't know because this is the first study that, that actually uh, looks at this. And, and I, look, we did a similar study to this, or we tried to do it in 2015 with the lofty title of the National Online Gambling Survey. We got 200 people, but it had strains of what was in this. 75% of our population had, gam had borrowed or stole money. There was all that same uh, ideas that were, that, that's come true in this study. This is two and a half, nearly 3,000 people in it. It's robust. It's from a national institute. And I say fair play to them for doing it and fair play to them for getting the results out. Because for, for a long, long time, we've been saying we need data. Anne-Marie Caulfield, the uh, CEO de de designate of the Gambling Regulatory Authority, has said this as well. And we now have this data. So we can argue it as much as we want. The data is there and the data doesn't lie. And you quoted in radio earlier today another study uh, from the Institute of Public Health, which is looking at 16-year-olds in this country and how much they gamble. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I, look, look, there's parents listening to this, right? I, I, you see little loot boxes in, in, in uh, video games. Fantasy sport leagues being played inside in schools, draws for, for monetary gain or draws for not monetary gain. And a lot of people haven't a fiddlers what's actually going on there. This is proliferation of the gambling product. There's people in offices all around the world with serious stock in this, in, in this proliferation. And that's what's happening. But at the same time, people are being harmed. It's a normalisation of it that you have a concern. Big time, about. yeah. Um, Rory, you have first-hand mm. experience of some of the harm of gambling. What is it like to live with a gambling addiction? 
Yeah, so for starters, I agree with everyone there. It, it, um, people only think of people that end up in your hands or, you know, on, on rock bottom and really bad place. But it's the ongoing, uh, the urge of the fix to put the bet on. It's funny you say 16. That's when I put my first bet on and went into the bookies, didn't know anything about it. Wrote down three teams to win. I think I put a five round, one maybe 20 or 30 yards. Oh, my God, this is great. And then suddenly you get a buzz and you realise that, you know, it's, it's not as easy to predict, especially in sport then. Remember a woman, me old bookie, saying it's a fiver now, Rory, but trust me, like, and basically, yeah, you just, it's all about, you know, constantly looking for more, more, like any addiction, like whether it be drugs or alcohol, you're looking for that constant fix. So from my point of view, but it's relative, like I was only on bad wages, but the wages I was on, for someone who's on 100, 200 grand a year, they were paying 20, 30 grand on it, where I was maybe 500 euro, whatever it was, that I didn't have. That's the bottom line, but I always, like, when can I get my next bet on? Looking for that dopamine kick, looking for something. And it was never, even when I won money, it was, I won money, you can't wait to nearly get rid of it, I'll buy the lads around a drink, or, and then I want to go back in again. So it's, it's never ending, like, you know, I've often, when I was bad, I'd come home, really annoyed myself, punched myself a few times, which sounds mad, but did, and then suddenly you calm down, you get a text, oh, there's a horse running, such and such. The owner or the trainer said he'd win, and I'm right, I have to get money, and where can I get money, and rooting out, I got my dad's golf bag, a few euro, heading back, putting it back on, and that was when I, when you had to go to the bookies. You know what I mean? And like, it was only five minute walk off down, and then you, there was like three or four books. You see, you, you kind of go into different ones, so the people behind the counter wouldn't know what you're at. So you go to another one, see that you don't want to know you have a problem. But then when the online stuff came in, that was it. It's just so easy. Like I found myself up at night back in cricket. I don't know anything about cricket. Don't care. It was just about to get the fix. Um, so. Yeah, it can bring you to a really bad place. But for me, like what I've understood, like it was addictive personality was how it was labelled. But like say uh, neurotypical brain, like I've ADHD and you're lacking in dopamine as the research says. So you're looking for that high and gambling will give it to you as with drugs. So it's, it's, you're never satisfied as this man knows. You never And you're are. living with chaos by the sounds of things. Chaos in your life and, and chaos in your, in your head and your mind, Rory. Yeah, well, like, you're, you, you become a liar. Like, you walk down the street with a heroin addiction or cocaine and people will physically see it or drink, will see it, but with the gambling, you're hiding all the time. And it's, 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 you could be talking to you and I'm not even listening to what you're saying. I'm just going, I can't believe the horse fell. I'm, I'm not even taking in what you're saying to me and I just can't wait to go. And it, yeah, it, it, it can lead you to a bad place we did for me, but especially 16-year-olds, they might think now, but when they get older and, you know, the wages, they look for a bigger hit, that's the way it goes. Uh, Robert, do you accept that the complete failure of regulation in this country for the last 15 years, I know it's been tackled now, but the complete failure for the last 15 years has contributed to the scale of the problem in this country. Well, firstly, just to say that I welcome the RSI report that's out today. It's, stark, it's a stark um, confirmation of what's happening in, in this industry. I'm not overly surprised. A very, very good friend of mine is attending Gamblers Anonymous for the last three years on a, on a weekly basis. And while never breaking the confidence of those meetings, would have shared stories with me in terms of who's going to them, uh, from all social backgrounds, from all ages, um, male, female, and the stories in terms of breakup of marriages, loss of business, loss of family, home. Um, so it, it's not surprising, and I suppose uh, that's why Minister Brown, to be fair to him, 
uh, has spearheaded this over the last two years in the Dáil. Uh, so much harm was done up to this point, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Minister Brown uh, was appointed the Minister of State uh, in the Department of Justice only two years ago. And in that time, the, reg the bill was promised in previous Dáils. It didn't come about. Um, we now have a bill that's on the back of uh, uh, the Oireachtas Justice Committee with all party support uh, and it's near uh, final stages in the Dáil. And he has spearheaded this to bring about the proper regulation to protect people who have a problem uh, with gambling. And we know, and it's confirmed today, unfortunately, that's at a higher level than what many people thought before. Well, do you think, Jed Nash, the bill as it stands and the powers of the regulator as it stands and is still to be finalised goes far enough? Or should this report today and the stark findings in it influence and perhaps change government's thinking towards gambling, the industry and the addiction in this country? Look, I'm open to persuasion on that. One thing I will say is that uh, the legislation that is and been progressed through the Oireachtas is long, long overdue. Attempts were made in 2013 to legislate in this space. We're waiting now 10 years for this legislation to be put on the statute books. Uh, I checked in recent days as to when the legislation may be enacted. Uh, it's likely that it will complete report stage at the end of this year, so we hope it will be enacted mm. early next year. My own colleagues, Senator Mark Wall and Deputy Anna Reardon, have done very pioneering work in this space, especially around uh, the uh, normalisation, if I can describe it, of gambling advertising. I mean, we can't switch on a football match now when it's not interrupted by uh, an ad for a betting company normalising uh, gambling behaviour and normalising the idea of gambling. I so how would, the how would the Labour Party then address what, that? What, what we had proposed, in fact, uh, during the passage of the legislation, and Senator Mark Wall proposed this, would be that there wouldn't be a prohibition on ads simply after the watershed at 9 o'clock. Because this is such an insidious issue, um, it's constant. I mean, we have children, I heard it said by the Minister earlier on today, in another, um, uh, 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 on, on a radio station, that you know, there's children going around casinos in their back pockets. Right? So legislation, a regulation is always a couple of steps behind the industry and developments in the industry, uh, multi-billion euro industry. What we propose would be, for example, one measure would be the... Um, prohibition of advertising on TV and radio on a 24-hour basis, so there wouldn't be access to those kinds of uh, advertisements that, that normalise um, gambling. I'm dealing all the time with people who are really in the middle of this. I mean, okay, I, I'm just going to put that point back because in the current uh, bill there will be a prohibition um, on gambling advertising, but up until nine o'clock after that, um, normal service, as it were, will resume. Do you agree with Jed Nash that it should be this 24-hour prohibition, that we don't need to see any more advertising for gambling companies well, in this country? Well, well, what we have is we have uh, the establishment of a statutory regulatory body. We've already appointed the CEO designate who's working on uh, the preparatory work. Um, we have the establishment of the National Gambling Exclusion Register. We have the tightening of uh, advertising, which... Um, you, you allude to between 5.30 and 9pm. But uh, does it need to go further like the Labour Party has and, suggested? And we have the prohibition of gambling payments by credit cards. I think what we have now is a very proportionate response because we have to acknowledge too, we have to acknowledge too that there's an equine industry behind this that is a very important industry that creates jobs. We also have to acknowledge that there is jobs at, at behind this, not to the fact that there is problems in this area, but we have to be proportionate in a response. And we have a, a, a CEO designate now, and if it's something that's deemed needs to go further, it can go further. Okay. But at the moment, I think it's a proportionate response. Uh, Colin Regard, do you think there's enough in this new gambling regulation to actually <coughs> tackle the problem head on, to reduce the number of people who are dealing with problem gambling in this country? 
I think after 13 years, I think it's, um, you know, Alan Shatter's original bill was 2012. Um, I think it's absolutely imperative that we continue the debate, but that we enact the, le the existing legislation mm. without delay. I think that's absolutely imperative. T t t the question as to whether... Would you like that legislation, though, given the scale of the problem, to go further? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, just, just we just heard the, the suggestion of the watershed. I mean, we submitted as part of the Irish College of Psychiatrists a submission about four or five years ago saying that um, absolutely there should be a 24-7 ban on advertising. I mean, to say that kids that, you know, that we should stop advertising at nine o'clock doesn't make any sense, you know. But I am, you know, I am slightly alarmed to hear... Um, uh, just the suggestion that the gambling authority will 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 deal with whatever. I mean, Minister Brown has done fantastic work and deserves an awful lot of credit for the work that he's done. But it's for government to mandate what happens in terms of gambling regulation in this country, and and the government of the day should not be pushing that off to the gambling regulatory authority and and, and washing their hands. That and I'm not suggesting they're doing that, but that is definitely a fear and has been a fear of ours for quite some time. So it's imperative, mm -hmm. such as bet limits, loss limits, and these kind of uh, you know inhibitions for people when they gamble, which are not in the bill but need to come in, that needs to be mandated from government going forward. And there needs to be a very strong approach from the government of the day, whatever okay. government that might be. to Minister Brown, he has been extremely strong on this and it's been He has, but I think just want to acknowledge but, 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 I just, but, but, I just want to sorry, go back, sorry yeah. to cut across you, Robert, I'm just very conscious of time here and I want to go back um, to you because you have first-hand experience of what it is like. What do you think would have helped you um, to deal with your gambling or to ensure that your gambling didn't get to the point where it was so problematic in your life? Education. Like, I, I think schools and colleges is where we need to go in and tackle it. Like, I didn't understand why I needed to gamble because, again, if you're not happy in your life, what do you do? You turn to coping mechanisms with gambling, drugs, alcohol. So it's being educated as young people going, this, this buzz will always be there and the buzz will never satisfy it. Do you know what I mean? So these 16-year-olds, 7-year-olds, they think, oh, it's only a bit of crack like me. Yeah. But what about the, the 1 in 30? Or what's more than that, by the way. Like, the 1 in 30 is severe, but there's a lot. Like, you go to any sporting team, you know, it's all chatting and weak, this, that, and And, like, I'm not saying, you know, good luck to every book. It's, it's not that. It's just the awareness of the, the addiction uh, within it. The, the one lad in the gang that can't just leave it at a bet on a match or a bet at Chatham or a bet in a race, he has to go into the local bookies, back virtual dogs and horses, which I've done. They just constantly get the hit. So me, for me, it's education in schools and, and understanding that this is only a survey now, but, but what about the 16-year-olds that have been doing it for the last two years who are only starting to be comfortable making that bet and getting used to putting bets on for everything, every soccer match, Gaelic match, football. It's always oh, it's normal to have a bet on. And you said that there's a real, you fear a real normalisation of this. Oh, it's completely normalised. Way outside the bookies or the bookie shop. Oh, yeah, like 100%. And even the watershed, like, like a lot of young people look at their phones now. So just keep looking. Can, can I just say, there's, there's a push on now from certain sectors, certain industries, to push back against this. And I would urge the Minister, uh, and you, Robert, and your Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Green Party colleagues, to stand firm uh, on this. I mean, this is an insidious um, issue. Um, we spoke about those who experience a spectrum of harm in terms of 
gambling addiction and problem gambling. But remember the multiplier effect and the number of people are impacted by the behaviour of a problem gambler. It may be seven or eight people. So we're talking about approximately a million people. So I'm, deal I'm, dealing with, I'm dealing with people representing people who are losing their homes, personal solvency arrangements, getting counselling for their children because of the impact. So when we talk about proportionate responses, you know, I think we need to have some perspective ourselves right. that this is such a significant issue that I we need to shout like stop. Robert, back in on that. We worked in government in 2013 to 2020. We came in in 2020. Minister Brown has made this a priority. It's going to be legislation within the next short period of time. And just to the point that Rory made, we're actually putting a levy on the... Uh, the bookie industry itself to create a social fund to ensure that education can be rolled out to ensure that people are protected into the future. What should that levy be? I think it's 2%. Would you agree with that, Colin? 2% two, two, two is news to me. I, think, I thought um, it was more like 1%, um, wasn't well, it? Well, well, look, 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 it, 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 it's, incre it's incredibly important Seven. that we cost how much it will be to support people who suffer from this illness across the country. This disease needs to be treated by multidisciplinary teams, both inpatient and outpatient across the country, and we need to cost that, and then we'll work Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. About the percentage, which I think would be reasonable. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Colin and to Rory for coming in to us. Robert and Jed are going to be staying on with me. Next, should we be spending more money on rural roads while we are dealing with the climate crisis? We debate it. Stay with us. Very welcome back. Well, TD's Robert Troy and Jed Nash are still here with me, and I'm also joined now by Irish Examiner political correspondent Paul Hosford, Seamus Boland, CEO of Rural Link, and on Skype by environmental journalist John Gibbons, because we're going to talk about calls for more investment to improve safety on rural roads. Very briefly, Paul, you might bring us up to date on what it was that Transport Infrastructure Ireland were were said to have said about investment in roads in Ireland. Yeah, this was a briefing note that was given to the Department of Transport last October in, the, in light of last year's budget. It warned that you know, without a mass investment in, in named uh, transport projects, you could see 77 more deaths, uh, about 375 more uh, injuries on Irish roads over the next couple of years. It warned that the, the, the pace of investment needed to be quickened. It named uh, certain certain roads linking big towns. It, it talked about the Cork North transport project. Uh, and it basically laid out a warning to Eamon Ryan that without this investment, 
these roads would remain or, or would become dangerous. It would, they would deteriorate to, to the point where they were. Um, at today's, today we had a, a, there was a press briefing uh, at the Phoenix Park. Roderick O'Gorman was there uh, on behalf of the, the, I suppose, on behalf of the Green Party and on behalf of the government. He said, look, the, the last couple of years since this government came into office, 5.1 billion has been spent on roads. A billion of that has been spent on, on safety upgrades. Patrick O'Donovan, the, the OPW minister, said, you know, the, the priority roads that have been named there are getting priority. He's very co confident of that. He, he name-checked the, the Cork to Limerick road. He said that's progressing. But he did say that the, the likes of the, the N24, which links Limerick to, to Waterford, is a concern. You know, you, you get to outside care and there's, there's roads there that are that are highly dangerous for the, the amount of traffic that they're, they're carrying. So it was, a, it was what Jack Chambers called a, a stark warning, but the, the, government is, the argument that the government is putting forward is that, look, this is not just about investment, it's not just about infrastructure, it's about penalty point reform, it's about enforcing the laws that are there, it's about reviewing speed limits, and it's about driver education. Is it about all of those things, do you think, yeah. Seamus Bullard, or is it mainly, do you think, about improving the infrastructure? It is all about those things, and to deny otherwise would be foolish. I mean, this is not the first time we've heard such a warning in 2011. The old NRA, as they were then, actually produced a report and said, uh, you know, we needed to spend £2.7 on the roads, and they did bring up safety concerns. So the safety concern is linked, of course, to the quality of roads. And you, you have to look at rural roads, uh, especially the secondary road network. And you have to ask, you know, is 550 million uh, enough a year because it covers the whole road budget? And of course it's not. And there was a debate in Dolier, and ironically uh, led by Robert, who I, 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 was, I didn't realize would be here tonight, where those statements were very clearly made that in order to protect the secondary roads network, we probably need to double the spending. And yet we have heard from Eamon Ryan that that is not actually going to happen, that really his focus should be on investing in public transport rather than investing in our roads. No, yeah, I read, with, I read Eamon Ryan and he also said uh, that we need to ensure that roads don't go into decline that they don't denigrate. And in order to protect roads, uh, they need to be fixed and fixed quicker rather than later. But public transport is another issue. I mean, we know Local Link do a really brilliant job in, in rural Ireland, and we know that the, the investment in that, in, rural, in Local Link, has really improved enormously, and we'd welcome that. But let's be clear, uh, most people in rural Ireland still depend on the cars. Actually, they depend on the second car. And I, I really have So you to think the priority should be improving the the roads it, it, over investing in the public transport, certainly in the short term for you? Well, the secondary road network is, is a very uh, an involved network. It needs constant repairs and it's always lagging behind. But just one thing on rural transport, I have to say this, every school, we all know that there, for if you, to get free through school transport, you need to live around outside four point uh, so kilometres from the school. If you live lower than that, you have to drive. And you can't walk or you can't cycle because the roads are too dangerous. And we have asked, Irish Rural Link, year in, year out, we have asked for the budget, a simple thing, remove that. If you really care about public transport, remove that limit of four kilometres roughly and allow uh, people to bring uh, the buses to collect the kids. All right, let's just go to John Gibbons. John, uh, the call there from uh, Seamus is that we need much further, much higher investment uh, in our rural roads, particularly in our secondary roads. That needs to be 
the priority here. And that, I suppose, is reflected in that uh, report or that memo from Transport Infrastructure Ireland for saying if we don't do that, we are looking at 77 potentially avoidable deaths on our roads. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think every death on the roads is a death too many. And probably, I think Seamus touched on a couple of the issues here. Uh, we need to look at driver behaviour. We need to look at enforcement. But we also need to look at things like appropriate speed limits. There are many rural roads where the speed limits are simply far too high. So if we're going to solve this problem, uh, patching up roads, of course, road maintenance needs to be, needs to be uh, kept up. But... Uh, appropriate driving for the road conditions available is also a factor. Ireland, unusually in Europe, has a really dense uh, network of secondary and tertiary rural roads, and it is enormously expensive to maintain these. So it's impossible to eliminate uh, fatalities from this road network as long as we maintain and tolerate uh, speeds that are excessive and that are dangerous. In fact, Seamus made the point a moment ago that uh, for kids who are close to schools, it is unsafe for them to cycle. Isn't this a crazy situation that kids living within three or four kilometres of our schools, are, we, we, its parents are not prepared to let them cycle because the very roads that we're talking about are too dangerous. And the key thing here that is making those roads dangerous is high speeds, inappropriately well, well, high speeds. I suppose, John, people would argue that actually the thing that makes a lot of those roads dangerous is the conditions of the roads, that that's what needs to be improved. If they were modern roads, straight roads, dual carriageways, you wouldn't have half of the concerns. Well, on that, Kira, uh, we have thousands, and I mean thousands of kilometres of secondary and tertiary roads. We cannot turn them all into motorways. We would literally spend every penny of the government budget if you're trying to produce perfect roads. We have a, a vast secondary road network. We, we maintain it at enormous expense, and the best way of reducing uh, avoidable road debts in these is challenging driver behaviour and lowering speed limits. Now, anyone who is committed to road safety should be signing up for that. And there's also, of course, a very significant emissions component to all this as well. We know over the last decade that the Irish government basically spent more than two to one of all the budget, uh, the transport budget went uh, into roads rather than uh, public transport, with the result that public transport has languished. And many people in rural Ireland uh, will say to you, that they can't make the transition. And of course, it's a chicken and egg situation. They can't make that transition because the money has not been invested into an integrated public transport system that joins the dots and also allows things like safe cycling in rural Ireland. I've heard from many people who say they, they, they live close to their local school and they still end up driving their kids there because, for example, the local authority never mind a cycle path, hasn't even provided footpaths to schools. So okay. at some point, Kira, we're going to have to balance up uh, the needs of vulnerable road users, the environmental impacts with the, with the if you like, the overarching uh, thing about that our entire road policy has to be based around getting motorists quickly from point A to point okay. B. Okay, Seamus, can I let you back yeah, in on that? I think, I think what John is saying, I, I'm not going to disagree anything, but I am going to make this point. There's a couple of points here. First of all, the amount of cars and the amount of heavier agricultural machinery now on rural roads has probably doubled and trebled. Anybody who knows driving on the roads in the summertime of the year, you, you will meet a harvester that's the full width of the road. And it's a heavy machinery. And a lot of the secondary roads have not got 
the capacity to carry them for very long. And the second thing is, the talking about a rural transport, we have Local Link, which is doing a fantastic job, but it, it could do a lot more and has to do a lot more. We are a long way from uh, having a, a, a proper integrated uh, public transport system for rural land. That means you need cars, and in every house, at least two cars. And if you need cars, you need good roads. You need good you roads, and you can't depend on the road that, as I said, heavy machinery is now on, roads break down very quickly because they were made in the old days for horse and carts. Some of those roads are not capable of carrying that machinery, and they break down. All right, um, I just want to go to you, Robert Troy, because there has been significant reports about uh, Eamon Ryan and Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael backbenchers being at loggerheads over road projects in their constituencies being repeatedly stalled by the Minister. Are you one of the backbenchers that has those concerns? Well, firstly, I suppose because of road diversions tonight, uh, I got the benefit of seeing how far we've come in terms of our investment into road infrastructure. Uh, there was roadworks taking place on the M4 and I was diverted through Minute, Selbridge and Leakslip to get here tonight. So there's maintenance happening on our, on our motorways tonight and we have had huge investment over, over the last decade or more. But as it happens today, I, I raised this very issue with Minister Ryan on the floor at all uh, because I do have concerns in relation to uh, the stalling of significant projects. And today I was talking about uh, the mullingar Ruski Road. Which is uh, the um, N4, the N4, isn't it? N4. Which was actually identified in this Transport Infrastructure Ireland report as being one of the roads that needs to be progressed. They said there would be seven deaths and 11 injuries forecast mm. if that wasn't tackled. It's an incredibly busy road. Uh, it's needed from a connectivity perspective in terms of the west and, and the northwest, and it's needed from the point of view of road safety improvements. Uh, we have at a stage where we're almost completed phase two and we don't have the money to move it to the next stage. And I think, you know, we should have learned from the mistakes of the past in terms of where we paused things where we didn't have money for them instead of giving the extra money, an extra three million to this road would bring it to the next level. And who's, and who's stalling it? Who's stopping it from being progressed? Well, like Eamon Ryan would leave you to believe it's Transport Infrastructure Ireland, but I, I, I think the... the, the the cause lies with the department. Um, with Eamon Ryan with, himself? With the minister, if, if he's of a mind, could, could ensure that these projects move on to the next level. No one can, would say that every road project can be completed in any one calendar year. No, it couldn't. That wouldn't be practical. But what we can do is we can continue to move these critical projects along, along the various stages so that they're shovel-ready when the funding is going to be there. And the funding is going to be there because what Minister Ryan did confirm on the floor of the Dáil today is there's £5.1 billion for new road projects in the National Development Plan, but it's at the latter half of the National Development Plan. We need to ensure that these critical roads are shovel-ready when that funding becomes available. OK, one of the points made by your colleague, uh, Sean Sherlock, uh, this is off the back of comments, I think, from James O'Connor, uh, where he was critical of Eamon Ryan and critical of the fact that some infrastructure projects in Cork had been delayed. Um, Sean Sherlock said, the green tail is wagging the Fianna Fáil dog when it comes to these projects. Do you agree? Well, I think Sean was probably trying to make the point that all of government must take responsibility if there are delays to, to what might be described as critical infrastructure in that particular case. Um, today we actually launched our alternative budget and one of the things that we proposed, for example, was a car scrappage scheme uh, to allow people to 
access up to €3,000 to electronic, electric bike, cargo bike and so on. Seamus, you've spoken, you're right. A lot of rural homes have that very old second car, heavy polluters, taking them off the roads is going to be really, really important and give people kind of viable solutions. Local Link is working quite well. It needs to be powered up. The connectivity now between Local Link and the main bus services is much better. It does need to improve. But I'd, I'd say this, I mean, and I, I agree with John, I mean, speed limit enforcement, uh, guard enforcement more generally is important. Uh, amendments and ad adaptations to penalty point systems and so on is significant as well to move and change driver behaviour. Um, but but, but I, I would say this, and, I, and I'm no proponent necessarily for building more roads, there are two, and I'm not going to go through a checklist on my own constituency either, but I think a point can be made. There are areas that viewers will be familiar with in my own constituency, Julianstown, for example, the old N1, just outside of Drogheda, in County Meath, absolutely chock-a-block with traffic every day. But isn't this uh, the problem, Serious though, emissions like causing real any, health problems. Yeah, no, no, but I could no, bring on any politician there. in no, no, any constituency no, no, in this country, not, and they'll be able to refer but, 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 to some road it's, where it's there's real point. problems. No, I, I'm, making the point. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, 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 a unique problem. This is a particularly acute problem. The evidence is there to show the level of pollution that's created actually in that village because of the heavily trafficked road. And a similar case made, there's, there's a bypass plan for RD town on the N2, one of our main routes, chock a block with traffic all of the but time. But the idea Serious is, emissions what do you in the middle of the prioritize? town. Prioritise so, public transport in no, that area or we, the road improvement in that area? We, we absolutely prioritise uh, public transport and getting people out of cars. And it's not necessarily the case that if you develop a bypass on what's already a very heavily trafficked traffic national route, that there's going to be more traffic on that route. It's simply allowing a town centre or a village centre to breathe and for okay. people's health to improve, because this is a public health issue as well. Okay, very I'm briefly. not a proponent for building more roads, but that, that, is, that is a fact. And I do agree that the public transport, or the, the, the transport budget has broken down on a two-to-one basis favouring public transport over the building of new roads. That's as it should be. We need to get more people out of cars, but we need as well that solution in school transport. We today proposed 40,000 additional school transport places. It is in bad need of reform. Okay. The school transport system owes more to the 70s and 80s than it does to modern Robert Ireland. Robert Troy, I just want to put one of the points that John Gibbons made there, which actually, he said, the main focus shouldn't necessarily be on improving roads and investing in roads and building your N4. It's driver behaviour. That's where you need to put your focus. Would you agree with him? Yeah, I, I, without doubt, uh, driver behaviour. And we need to see a greater presence of the traffic core on our roads. And, uh, but min, min, but min, with a new road, yeah. you would say. But we do need new roads in certain locations. That, that's a given uh, for, for a whole plethora of reasons. We have a, a breakdown of two to one. There is huge investment in public transport, and rightly so. And speakers have, I suppose, have acknowledged the improvement in our, in our local link service. It's getting much better across many constituencies. But in terms of from a road safety perspective, yes, we do need to see a greater presence from the traffic core on our road. Okay. And Minister Chambers is bringing forward new legislation in terms of uh, how to bring forward, I suppose, to <coughs> incentivise people to be better behaved on the road. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to Robert, to Jed, to Seamus and to John. Next, a row over the portrayal of working-class Dublin in a new movie starring Bono's daughter. Stay with us. Well, a Dublin-based actor has criticised Eve Houston's portrayal of a working-class single mother in a new movie. Joe McGuckin described her performance in the film Flora and Son for being outdated and out of touch. Let's take a look at some of the trailer. You are a great mother. Am I? 
Happy birthday. What's that? It's yours. Don't want to play. Since when am I a guitarist? I can't go on like this, living in a shoebox with a kid who hates me. Can't wait for the day I don't have to be here. Go on! Go back to your dad! I might learn the guitar myself. That's just too funny. It takes years of practice, commitment. Are you really going to talk to me about commitment? Well, Paul Hosford is still here with me and I'm joined by entertainment journalist Mike Sheridan to talk about this story. You're very welcome to the programme, Mike. Can you bring me through exactly what it is that this Dublin actor tweeted? He basically said that he found it, I think, a little bit disconcerting that Eve Hewson, who, of course, is Bono's daughter, was playing a working-class person. And obviously Jack Rayner as well. Is play I haven't seen the movie yet, but is playing a working-class person. And I'd actually saw the reaction to her yesterday. And to say that the reaction was uh, explosive was, is probably an understatement. He got some serious amount of pushback from it, which, again, I thought was a bit ridiculous as well. I think people were kind of ignoring the nuance. Yeah, I think, I think look, the, the, the film itself... From You've John, seen the film? Yeah, it's a, and it's a, it's a, good, it's a good film. Uh, John Carney, who's the director of The Likes of Sing Street, and... He made once as well, and you know it's it's a good film. Uh, I think one of the things that you you are you do get lost in watching it is that it's Eve Hewson who's playing a, a working class person, and I don't think that that's necessarily her fault. Um, sometimes it's it's just that the accent is a bit off, and that's okay. I think people are entitled to act outside of their class, and uh, but I think what really matters is the representation of of working class communities in, in pieces like this, and I think really on the whole the film did a decent enough job at that. It didn't, uh, it didn't fall into caricature or pastiche of, of working class communities. It didn't, you know, it, it relied some often, I suppose occasionally on uh, some stereotypes, but it didn't, oh, it, it didn't fall into that kind of, you know, punching down or it didn't feel like that to me. And, and I, I think John McGuckin is actually trying to get a, a, a more nuanced thing about, I suppose about placement of, of working-class actors and working-class creatives within Ireland where, you know, it, it, essentially there is a class element to access to, to these things. I, I think generally the film probably would have been better if it was a working-class, if it was working-class actors, but I know that there's reasons beyond that. And, and the, you know, the class element alone didn't detract from the performances of Jack Rayner or Eve Hewson. It, it, it's just, I suppose it's, it's a more layered thing, yeah, knowing who she was and, and, and knowing, you know, where she came from and playing that role. Yeah, because it is interesting, Mike, because Jack Rayner, who's also in the movie, is not from a working class background either, is he? He's not from that area of Dublin, but he doesn't come in for the same criticism as she does. Is it because of who she is? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a separate argument there as well. Like, that's nepotism. And that's a separate argument. She's in the same business her father was obviously in, in terms of probably John Carney and the funders selling the movie abroad. It might help to have Eve Hughes, and she's by no means a household name, but that attachment to Bono, she's done a few things. She's a really good actor. It helps to open doors. It helps open doors. But I understand Joe's frustration because I can imagine as a working class actor, there's very, very few opportunities to come up and play roles like this. It doesn't come around often. So, but in saying that as well, this is where the nuance comes into it. Actors act. Yeah. You know, Brian Cranston played a paraplegic a few years ago and he got in trouble over that. So it's a slippery slope when you start going down that road and I think that's why he got pushed back. Um, the, the second tweet that he did uh, make, it was in response to somebody who was criticising what he'd said um, online. He said, I'm sad that there are less and less working class actors getting roles these days. It's the same small pocket of posh, boarding school educated people with industry connections and that's making from for boring viewing. Do you agree with that assessment of the industry? Look, it's it's not an industry that I'm 
particularly au fait with, but I do think that that's, it's like that in a lot of Irish industries that are small, media, create, any creative uh, industry, anything like that, they're, they're, it tends to fall to people who have connections and, and people who come from a, a certain class. And that's something that, you know, media's been, media's been bad at, really, really bad at, at, at opening the doors over the last 10, 15 years to the point where it, things are equalised. Uh, but, you know, I, and I think, I think speaking or, or watching uh, working class creatives talk, they feel that pinch as well. Absolutely. And I think having a working class person front and centre, be it on radio, uh, be it on TV front and something, it matters. It's the diversification has been, it's expanded significantly over the last few years. But for some reason, working class people do seem to be a little bit left behind. And yet we would see one of the most successful new actors of this generation is Barry Keown. Yeah, but Barry, there always comes a story of Barry Keown. That story about his mother is always attached to him. That always really annoys me because he's a brilliant actor and that should be the story now. It doesn't need to be brought up every time from somebody looking for interactions or, or retweets or whatever it is. But perhaps it does need to be brought up that Eve Houston is the daughter of Bono every time she acts in a movie either. No, and, and I do think there is a point there that her performance should have been allowed to stand on its own. And if you want to discuss her class there, her, who her father is probably doesn't really matter in that context. But what you're trying to get at is, is a very, very nuanced conversation about, you know, the size of the, the film industry, the access to it, the, who gets roles, nepotism, class, and you're trying to do it on Twitter where it's just not, <laughs> you're not yeah. going to get to the, we, to the core of that discussion. They don't do nuanced very well on Twitter, no. do they? Yeah, we've got some brilliant, I think, uh, working class creatives in Ireland. I think Emma Kirwan is a genius. I think Shauna Carslake is one of the best actors that we have. They are there. Like Dublin Old School came out a few years ago and really tried to replicate that mm. experience. Obviously, it was Emmett's play as well. And I was shocked at how flat that fell with some critics. Because I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. You know, that kind of lived experience to some degree. I got it. And film critics really pushed back on it. And that was something that really surprised me. So those working class creatives are there. There's just not enough uh, opportunities. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to all of my guests for joining us this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, BMTV. From all the late team here, good night and do take care.